0: Good morning, Winchester Baptist Church. I'm so glad to be with you this morning and see many familiar faces, some new faces, and some new human beings. So that's exciting and awesome. Um, Actually, do we know if Tim made that slide? Is that is that who made that? Don't know. What's that? Chances are, okay, good. He likes details, so I have to give him a hard time because he's missing one of my human beings now. Little Phoebe, um, who's four months old, but I've got to get the website updated, so it is my fault as well. But uh, I'm really glad to be with you this morning, and of course I send you greetings from Hamilton Baptist Church, where I'm currently privileged to serve as one of their pastors, um, and I also send greetings from other pastors and elders there, specifically Dave Murray sends his greetings, and Craig Sweeney, who I believe was just with you all a few months ago, sends his greetings as well. However, in just a few few months, I will no longer be one of the pastors at Hamilton Baptist Church uh, because they're kicking me out, or rather they're sending me out to plant Lovettsville Baptist Church, which will be launching this fall. And of course, that's something that you all have been a part of and continue to be a part of. And I'm grateful for gospel partnerships, like we read about in the New Testament between Paul and the Philippians, but also I feel that same way about you all as well who, humanly speaking, have made this possible. So thank you, Winchester Baptist Church, for your prayers, your encouragements, your supports. And I don't remember when it was. 2020's made everything a blur, but I came here for six weeks, and you all kind of let me do like a mini residency and learn under Tim, learn how to design worship services. And that was so, so helpful to me. And I plan on using those resources and tools um, in Lovettsville Baptist Church. So thank you for that. And of course, you all are helping us with a trailer, which I'm really excited about. Um, now my family has a place to sleep. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding, of course. we In God's kindness and providence, we were able to close on a house this past week in Um So we're getting into the community and working on getting moved in. And thank you seriously for your generosity in doing that as we prepare to be a mobile church and meet in Lovettsville Elementary Well, I am thrilled to be spending the next 2 weeks with you all, not just talking about the church plant, but talking about Jesus himself, which is why we do all of this. This is why we gather each week. This is why you help plant churches and raise up other pastors. And I think this is a wonderful section from the Gospel of John, and we'll be in John chapter 10, John chapter 10 for the next 2 weeks. And it's one of those passages where You just get to stare at Jesus for a while. You get to listen to Jesus for a while. And you get to see who he is. You get to hear what he's like. You get to consider what he has come to accomplish and how he does that. And then even at the end of this passage, which we'll cover next week, you get to see his manifold wisdom and how he answers who he is to his critics. So this morning, if there's any confusion any fogginess out there on your part or even mine on who Jesus is or what he's come to do, this passage is very helpful in clarifying. So if you're here this morning or you're listening to this sermon this morning and you don't know Jesus or maybe it's unclear of who he is and why do we gather each week and sing praises to him, I think this passage will be really, really helpful for you. And I pray that this passage changes that. In fact, I've actually been praying for you. Not because I have anything new or even that creative to say, but because you get to behold Jesus from an eyewitness account himself. It's John, a close disciple follower of Jesus who writes about him. And of course, we as Christians understand it's not merely John writing, but the Holy Spirit actually inspired his writings as well. But even for those of us who love Jesus and follow Jesus, and consider ourselves to be Christians, this passage is also really helpful and deserves your full attention today. Because whether it's from our own sin, our own lingering doubts, or perhaps the outward pressure that we face from the society around us, sometimes Jesus becomes a bit foggy, doesn't he? Sometimes it becomes a little bit unclear. Is he really as good as we thought he was? Is he really as powerful as he claims to be? Because sometimes if we're honest, life and our situations and our experiences don't seem to match that. So is it true? And when it becomes unclear or uncertain who Jesus is, our love and allegiance to him wavers and diminishes. And we don't want that to happen. So let's take a few moments this morning and just stare at Jesus and listen to him From John chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 10. And as you're as you're turning there, as you're working your way there, let me catch you up on what's been happening in John chapter 9, because it's actually helpful in understanding our passage today. If you were to read John chapter 9, and it's quite long, there's 41 verses in there, you will see that Jesus just miraculously healed a man who was born blind, Now, let's pause for a moment. This isn't our sermon today, but it's easy to say things like that and think, of course, that's what Jesus does. He's a healer, but he's making a claim that there was a man born blind he could not see and Jesus healed him. You just need to pause for a moment and realize that actually happened. And the Pharisees, as the chapter concludes, the religious leaders of Israel, they have no idea what to do with this. They have no clue how to handle this Jesus. Their reactions, in fact, are divided. There's no consensus on who Jesus is. It ends by some of them reviling him while others are asking the question, how could this man do this if he wasn't sent from God? There's a lot of questions in the air about Jesus's identity. And John chapter 10 comes in, to help clear that up for us. You see, the claims and actions of Jesus demand a response. You can't read about Jesus and just ignore his claims. You either accept him or you reject him. That's why we still talk about him today. Uh, you may disagree on who Jesus is or what he's done, but one thing you must agree on is he's polarizing. He's divisive and he demands a response. And John wrote this gospel or this biography to help us make the proper response. Later in chapter 20, John gives away his purpose. He says, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in this Jesus, you may have life in his name. That's what we're talking about, life. You want to find life? Listen as we consider John chapter 10. You want to live? Behold the good shepherd. So Jesus speaking to those Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, he says in John chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. for a moment and consider what's going on. It's becoming clear and it's it's here where Jesus begins um, to explain what's going on, who he is. And he uses a, a familiar image. It would have been common in their day, shepherds, sheep. Maybe for some of you that's common and you're familiar and you know a lot about sheep. I do not know a lot about sheep. I do not know a lot about shepherds. But in that time period, this would have been a common expression, common understanding. And Jesus uses this figure of speech to help explain what's going on, as he often does throughout his teaching. Of course, sheep and sheepfolds were also common metaphors for the people of God, for Israel. You read the Old Testament. We've read some of those passages even this morning, but there's there's even many, many more. And also this idea that God himself is a shepherd for his people. What's perhaps one of the most famous psalms that we read that about? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. His people are his sheep. And even later on, as we'll see down in verse 16, it becomes clear that he's talking about the house of Israel as his sheep. But there is a threat, right? Jesus talks about this. He says, there's a threat. There are thieves and robbers and they seek to harm the sheep. They seek to use them for their own benefit. On the other hand, there's a shepherd. And the sheep that belong to this shepherd, they know him. They recognize his voice. In fact, they recognize his voice so much that they won't even follow anybody else. But notice after Jesus gives this introduction to the story and sets the scene, how it ends in verse six, as we just read. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus just healed a blind man in chapter 9, but it seems as if the Pharisees, the religious leaders themselves, are blind to what's going on around them. They need to be given eyes to see. But Jesus goes on to explain, and let's continue reading, Verses seven through 10. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Okay, now it's getting clear. All who come before, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here Jesus is really clarifying what's going on in his figure of speech and it's here where I'd like to give you what what I understand to be the main idea of this passage and it will be the main idea of our of our sermon today for you and it's this. Jesus is the one sent to deliver and bring true life for God's people as the loving and mighty shepherd. So what we want to talk about today, let me say it one more time. Jesus is the one sent to deliver and bring true life for God's people as the loving and mighty shepherd. So I want to think through this passage in three points with you today. It might be helpful if you follow along, or if you're taking notes. First point is going to be the open door to life. The second point is going to be the loving shepherd. And finally, we'll see the mighty shepherd. So first, let's consider this open door to life. Before Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, which is probably, if you have a little heading uh, above your Bible in chapter 10, it probably says something about Jesus being the good shepherd. But before he calls himself the good shepherd, he calls himself the door, which perhaps seems a little odd to us. It doesn't sound maybe as cool or as creative as calling yourself the good shepherd. Why does he claim to be the door? I don't see a lot of paintings about that. I see a lot of paintings about Jesus being depicted as the good shepherd, but not a door. How would you how would you even do that? How does that work? What's going on here? Well, again, I don't know a lot about first century shepherding but I've read a few things and let me share with you one of those things that I've read that I think puts this together. When shepherds were traveling, they would have to make a temporary or a makeshift sheep pen. They're not in their home pasture, they're out traveling somewhere, so it have to be temporary. And you would do this by taking some brush or some rocks or maybe somewhere natural, wherever you're at, and make an enclosure around so that you could bring the sheep in and give them protection from the thieves and the wolves that would come and try to get them at night. Now, of course, the shepherd's not carrying a gate or a door with him, but there would be an opening in this makeshift temporary sheep pen. So there's one opening where the sheep could go in and the sheep could go out. And it's here where the shepherd would actually sit and sleep. So in a very literal sense, the shepherd was the door. You want to get into this sheep pen? Who do you got to go through? The shepherd. You want to get out of this sheep pen? You got to go through the shepherd. You want to mess with the sheep? You got to come through the shepherd. He was the only way in and he was the only way out. Now this language is, is really interesting when you talk about a shepherd and in and out. It seems like small and insignificant words. But Moses in the book of Numbers actually prayed this. Listen to what he said in Numbers 27. He said, let the Lord appoint a man over his people who shall go out and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in so that God's people may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. You see, I think the way John is writing his gospel and the reason he used those words is he's showing us that prayer of Moses has been answered. The true shepherd of God's people, the one who's going to lead them out to life and bring them in for refuge and safety, he's here and Jesus is claiming that himself. Jesus is the door. Why did sheep need to come in to the sheep pen? Well, for protection and security and refuge. Why did the sheep need to go out of the sheep pen? Well, for pasture and nourishment, for food. Jesus is describing life. In fact, that's why he said the shepherd has come to give life and to give it abundantly. But notice before we talk about that life, When Jesus says that he is the door, he doesn't say that he is a door, does he? Jesus says, I am the door. He's the door. This is exclusive. And sometimes, especially in today's culture, we get uncomfortable when we talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. But what Jesus here is claiming and what Christians have always believed is that other religions are not merely alternative ways to life. If Jesus is indeed the way, that means there is no other way to life. But it's not merely other religions that are not the ways to life, but neither, friend, are you. I am not the way to life. You are not the way to life. Being true to yourself, which you may hear over and over again, friends, will not find will not give you life. It's not found in you. Other religions, other ideas, are not the door to life. You yourself are not the door to life. And there are many things that Jesus teaches. There are many teachings in scripture that are foggy, I think are hard to understand. But friends, this is clear. Jesus is the door and it reminds us of What John would write in chapter 14, that he is the way, the truth, and what? The life. But the exclusivity of Jesus should not only be applied to the insufficiency of other religions. Christian, brother and sister, you need the exclusivity of Jesus. You should treasure the exclusivity of Jesus this morning because of its sufficiency, because of his sufficiency. Theological precision is not the door to life. Theological precision is not the door to life. Having all the correct answers won't give you life. Getting a seminary degree will not give you life. Trust me, I know. And I'm not undermining theology. I love theology. If I read a book, it's probably going to be on theology. Theology matters. Having the right answers matter, but it's not mere head knowledge that gives you life. Christian performance does not give you life. Your acts of service, your generosity, your charity, those are the result of life. The New Testament's clear about that, but they do not give you life. We get life through Jesus Theological precision is not the door. Christian performance is not the door. Jesus is the door to life. So when we don't have all the answers, or we can't say things or articulate them in the best way, or our acts of service run dry, we cling to Jesus because he is the door to life. Whether you've had a bad week spiritually, or whether you've had a, what you consider a really good week spiritually, it doesn't matter. You cling to Jesus, for in him you find rest and life. So Christians, brothers and sisters, remember the exclusivity of Jesus is not just something we talk about with other religions, although that's true and that's good and that's proper, and we must do that. But we also need the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus is the open door to life. Notice that while this is exclusive, There's an open invitation. Notice what Jesus says in in verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So while Jesus is clearly saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, come to me. If anyone enters in, they will find salvation and life. And he calls this abundant life. Jesus came to give us the good life. Ever since it's been lost at Eden, we've all been searching for the good life. This is the story of humanity. That's the story of the Bible. We've all been searching for what it means to truly flourish as a human being. And Jesus says, that's actually found in me. Refuge, nourishment, provision, life, both now and forevermore. Life is found in Jesus. Okay, well, this is what Christians claim, because this is what Jesus claimed. And this sounds really good, right? Doesn't this sound good, whether you agree with me at this point, it sounds good that there's actually somebody who says he can bring us true life and offer us refuge and protection. But if you're reading this passage, and probably if you're one of the religious leaders of the day, you're asking, okay, well, how can this be? How is this possible? Well, Jesus goes on to tell us. And it's all wrapped up in who Jesus is as the good shepherd. Look in verse um, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. So whatever Jesus is about to explain to us, it's all wrapped up in who he is. So let's read verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd Received from my Father. So all these claims about Jesus being the way, the life, the door. He says it's possible because of who he is and what he's going to do for his people. So why is Jesus such a good shepherd? Why does he deserve your love, your allegiance, your life? Why should you worship him? Because he will go to any length to rescue his sheep. He loves them. Look at verse 12. And let's note some comparisons here. A hired hand is not a shepherd. A hired hand doesn't own the sheep. In the face of danger, what does the hired hand do? He abandons the sheep. Verse 13, hired hands care nothing for the sheep. But compare that to the good shepherd. Compare that to Jesus who indeed is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep and they know him. He gives his life for the sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders who he's contrasting himself with, they are to be the religious leaders. They are to be the teachers of Israel. He's applying Ezekiel, as we read earlier, to them. He's saying, you were to be leading these people. You were to be shepherding these people. And you're just like the shepherds described in Ezekiel 34. But I, Jesus says, I'm not a hired hand. This is personal to me. These sheep are mine. I won't abandon them. And Jesus even goes so far to say that I will lay down my life for the sheep. But friends, these were not mere words or claims of Jesus He actually did it. He actually laid down his life for his people. On the cross, Jesus willingly, and that's important. He says, I willingly give my life as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's a big word. But what that means is that you and I, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against a holy God, deserve nothing but his judgment, his wrath. We deserve death and destruction. But Jesus says, I will lay down my life for my people so that they can indeed have life. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. And notice the words, the, the word in 11, verse 11 and 15, that little word for, I lay down my life for the sheep. On down in verse 15, Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. One commentator noted that every time this little word occurs in John, it's used within the context of sacrifice. That is dying on behalf of somebody else. And do you remember what else John would tell us? Greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. Don't miss the contrast. For the thieves and wolves that are in this passage, for them to live, the sheep must die. But for the sheep to live, the shepherd must die. For the wolves and the thieves to live, the sheep must die. But for the sheep to live, the shepherd must die. And friends, on the cross, as the Apostle Paul would write, God demonstrated his love for us. For that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died to free us from the power and the penalty of sin. Yet the question remains, don't miss this. The cross is a substitutionary act of Jesus on your behalf, on the behalf of his people. Yet the question remains, what good is a dead shepherd? We read stories of people giving up their lives for other people. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. It shows such great love. And no doubt we can say Jesus is loving. After all, he would give his life, not because of anything that he has done, but for sinners. But Jesus made a lot of promises in this passage. He promised to lead his sheep. He said that there are other sheep that need to be brought into this fold. How is he going to do that if he gives up his life? A dead shepherd is not a very good shepherd. Even the most loving one. But friends, Jesus is the one to sent, sent from God to deliver us and bring life to us not only as the loving shepherd but the mighty shepherd. So that's our last point for today is the mighty shepherd. The mighty shepherd. Notice what's going on in verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He wasn't forced to go to the cross. He didn't have to go to the cross. He willingly went to the cross because of his love for his people. He came to earth on a mission given to him by his father, But he also not only came with love, but he came with authority. He not only came with compassion, but he came with power. Notice what he says. I have authority to lay it down, but I also have authority to take it up again. Jesus willingly came and placed himself as the good shepherd in the most vicious wolf's mouth, which was sin and death itself. It was bloody. It was horrific, but it was not the end. Three days after being crucified on the cross for the sins of his people, Jesus rose again. And this is the central claim of what it means to be a Christian, that Jesus died for our sins. We can be forgiven of our rebellion against God and made clean and have peace and have life because Jesus not only died on behalf of his people, but he rose again. And by now it should be clear that Jesus is much more than a shepherd who cuddles little lambs and tickles their nose and kisses their face. Yes, he is gentle, he's compassionate, he's loving, but friends, he is mighty and he is powerful. Ezekiel 34:15 as we read, God says, "I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep." Ezekiel 34:23, God says, "I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd." Ezekiel 34 talks about God being their shepherd but it also talks about this servant, David, being their shepherd. So is it God or is it David? Well, you look at the person of Jesus, the answer is yes. Yes, it's God himself who is the Messiah, the promised one who would crush the serpent's head, the promised king who would save his people. Jesus is the resurrected shepherd king. He is the good shepherd. One of the the old philosophical questions against the God of the Bible and against Jesus himself is is basically laid out like this. Maybe God is good, but he can't be powerful and good. Or maybe God is powerful, but he can't be good. In other words, God can't be loving and powerful at the same time because they look at the suffering going on around us in the world. And they say, maybe he's loving, but he's just not able to do something about it. Or maybe he's all powerful, but he's not loving and doesn't want to do anything about it. Friends, this passage crushes that because it shows us that God loves his people so much that he would send his one and only son to bear their sins, to die on the cross. You can't read this passage and question the love of God. But simultaneously, you can't read this passage and question the power of God. Because he raised Jesus from the dead. God is indeed loving and he is indeed powerful enough to end suffering. But who are the sheep? Well, this passage tells us that it's those who hear his voice. It's those who follow him. Those who know his voice. Those who listen to his voice. They don't listen to strangers From what I understand, you all have been in the book of Jude and you've been talking a lot about those false voices or those deceptive voices. So it's not my intent to talk much about that today. Trust Tim's done a good job of that for you already. But it's good to be reminded of this, isn't it? Sheep, His sheep, Jesus' people, don't follow strangers. So the question is, do you belong to Jesus? Verse 16 I love this verse. Look at it. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Friends, this story of Jesus gathering his people, gathering his sheep to rescue them, to give them life, is not over. In fact, it's, it's amazing. He says, I already have them. He says, I already have other sheep who are not yet in this fold. Now, again, you're reading this and more questions keep coming up. How can he already have them? Well, in John, we read about the father giving the son a people to rescue. In chapter 17, Jesus prays to his father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. Or in John chapter 6, Jesus would say that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So there's something divine, even a bit mysterious going on, that the Father has a people even before time itself began who He's pulled out of the world and says, I will rescue them and He gives them to His Son. The sheep are given by the Father to the Son and in His love, all, that's the only way we can explain it. In his love and in his mercy, he's chosen to save a multitude out of the world by giving them to Christ who would die for them and rise again for them and the Spirit would apply that work to them. So he has them already. But at the same time, he says, I must bring them. So they're his, but he, he must still gather them. He must still bring them in and they will listen to his voice. Brothers and sisters, this is why we still exist on this earth. We're His witnesses. By the words that we say, by the way we live our lives, this is why we proclaim the beautiful message of the Gospel. And what confidence this ought to give us as we live our lives as Christians, as we speak to our friends and family about the Gospel, as we open our mouths and live as witnesses to Jesus. He has His people. And he's bringing them in. Many years ago, Augustine was reflecting on this passage, and this is what he said: "How many are now living in wantonness who will yet be chaste? How many are blaspheming Christ who will yet believe in him? How many are giving themselves to drunkenness who will be yet sober?" How many are preying on other people's property who will yet freely give of their own? Nevertheless, at the present, they are hearing the voice of another. They are following strangers. See what Augustine is reminding us? Jesus is continuing to bring people into his sheep pen, into his fold. But right now they don't look like sheep. They're following the voice of a stranger. But friends, this is why, even more so, we should proclaim the gospel. This is why we gather each week to hear his word. Nothing will stop the sovereign voice of this shepherd from gathering his sheep. So what will you do with this loving and mighty shepherd? Notice how our passage for today ends. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Friends, I think John put those responses in there for you to put yourself in this same exact situation and ask the question. Jesus demands a response. Who is he to you? What about you? Is he just another insane character of history? Or are there things that he's done that just cannot be explained other than the fact that he truly is the son of God? He really is the one to save you. Have you heard the words of life from Jesus? Have you patterned your life after him? Are you following him? Christian, Jesus' love for you is a reflection of the Father's love for the Son. It's what he says in verses 14 and 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of this, Christian, These simple yet glorious truth. Jesus loves you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not asking you to do a better job. Of course, he's calling you to holiness, but he loves you. And it's not because of anything that you've done, but he loves you. Right? Verse, verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know them. It's one thing to say you love somebody until you get to know them, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's easy to say you love somebody, but then when you start really getting to know them and feel, and figuring out where they fail and all, all, you know, all their sin, Like, I don't know so much. But Jesus knows you, and he still loves you. It's on a whole nother level when someone knows you, and every single thing about you, may I add, the very creator of the universe knows you, yet he loves you. He loves you. Brothers and sisters, this is our good shepherd. One song that I love reads, The king of love, my shepherd is... Perverse and foolish often I strayed, but yet in love he sought me and on his shoulder gently laid and home rejoicing brought me. Friends, the King of love is your shepherd. What depths God has gone to bring us life. We receive true and abundant life because Jesus gave his. If you have everything that this world can offer you, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. You don't have life. But if you don't have anything in this world except Jesus, friends, you have life. Jesus is the one sent to deliver and bring true life for God's people as the loving and mighty shepherd. So friends, follow him. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, we are... So grateful to have your word and to consider your son Jesus who is indeed our good shepherd. And I pray that any doubts or confusion that we may have about who Jesus is and what he's done or perhaps we think that this is all good news but it just cannot apply to me. It's just too good to be true. I pray that your spirit would Help us to understand that it is indeed true. And may we pattern our lives after the Good Shepherd. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.